This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello and welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. My name is John Dunn, and this week we're talking about transport. It is a key life-saving program for many years now. We've been moving animals from one place to another, from one community where a positive outcome is less likely to a community where the life-saving progress has gotten to a point where they can handle more animals, where a greater need for animals from the public to adopt exists. And of course, that need equals a life saved. But transport can be expensive. Finding partners and creating the relationships on both the sending and receiving end can be tricky. And there are other things that must be considered, right? Such as medical, behavioral concerns. Check out the show notes for a link to this episode on our website. There you will find tons of transport-related resources. Again, in the show notes, or go to bestfriends.org slash podcast. Click the link for episode 129. To talk more about transport, we've got two Best Friends experts lined up this week. Dr. Aaron Katribe, the medical director for Best Friends. But first up is Audrey Lodato. She's a senior strategist for the East Region. So my name is Audrey Lodato, and I'm a senior strategist with Best Friends, and I work on the regional team. I work with animal shelters in the Northeast in 10 different states to help them improve their programming and save more animals. Audrey, this is a huge topic, uh, as we know. Um, I will say this episode, I think, definitely born out of, you know, some of my own experiences, things we're all seeing and hearing online directly from partners. Everybody's crunched right now, and transport can be a lifesaver, literally, but also not doing it effectively can just make things harder, a lot harder, right? So if we're sending animals, for example, that haven't been seen by a vet, we're taking big risks at a time when I'm not sure we can handle the results of those risks should things go not the way we planned them to. So let's start with the basics. For people who are not familiar with transport, its role in saving animals in shelters, what is that relationship? Right. So in some communities, Animal shelters may have less animals available for adoption than in others, right? So communities will bring animals in from other communities where those animals are at risk so that the uh, receiving shelter has more animals for adoption. And then the idea is that the sending shelter will, you know, get some more space and be able to save more lives on that end. So when it comes to responsible, managed appropriately, whatever term you want to use, can you define for me what you consider to be responsible transport? Well, so, you know, the goal of transport is to redistribute animals, which gives the shelters that are sending animals the bandwidth to establish programming in their own communities so that they don't have to do transport anymore, right? So we're all doing transport so that eventually we don't have to do transport. And I think that's the goal that we really need to keep in mind. And responsible transport, you know, just keeps that as a focus. I'd like to ask you about the numbers part of it, I guess, which I think can be controversial sometimes. Because there are people who think it's irresponsible to bring animals into a community from outside to a community that has not yet achieved the 90% life-saving benchmark, saving 90% of the animals entering the shelter. You know, from your perspective, is it that simple? I think that you need to definitely be familiar with what's going on in your own community and where your local shelter is at and understand what are the reasons that your local shelter isn't at 90%, right? And is it an overpopulation issue? Do they have too many animals or are there other reasons where maybe they haven't attained that goal yet? And if you're bringing animals in, really thinking about how what you're doing is going to affect what it is that they need. 
Um, so I do think that there are times when maybe a community isn't at 90% and you can still do transport. It really is about the specifics about why that community isn't there. You know, it's a supply and demand issue. And if we think about it from like a retail perspective, which I know can feel sort of crude given what we do because pets are not things, but the receiving community you know, the better they do, they may well be running low of those highly adoptable pets. And if we're beating this adoption drum like we have been for decades now, and folks are making the decision to adopt, but they're not finding anything close to what they want. And yes, I know we can convert some of those people to older pets or maybe a type of dog they weren't thinking about, but we can't do that for everyone. So we want to make sure that we're serving our customers, giving them what they want, or, you know, we may well lose them forever because the experience was... I did what they asked. I went into the shelter. They didn't have any suitable pets for, for my family. And so that may be the last time they ever do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you do have a shelter that is, you know, maybe specifically full of one kind of type of dog, and those dogs all maybe look similar, bringing in some animals that look a different way or, you know, are a little different in size or whatever the variation might be actually drives traffic to your shelter. And you'll find that uh, some of the other dogs are going to go home as a result. Yeah. We used to have a program at Best Friends called Pup My Ride. Hilarious name. Uh, and But LA, they've got a ton of small dogs, a lot of small dogs. And that's not true in other areas of the country, but there's still a big desire for them from the public. So I think it really is about getting animals to places where they can just be saved more easily. Yeah, absolutely. They are. And, and you know, you can think about transport even with um, long stay animals that you have in your shelter and maybe a, a you know, partner shelter in a, a slightly different place or two counties over. Sometimes the benefit of being the new dog in the shelter is all that's really needed to get adopted. So transport can look a lot of different ways. Let's talk about finding partners. Not always the easiest part of this, I will say. For those who have been doing it for a few years, you know, you may remember the PetSmart Charities Rescue Wagon Program, which I think it's fair to say it was really the only thing like that back then, um, you know, helping uh, facilitate transports. When that went away six, seven years ago, not always clear as to how to find those partners, right? Today, those tools do exist. We've got one for our best friends, network partners. It is free to become a network partner, by the way. Links in the show notes. But our map does show sending and receiving groups. But in your work with organizations, how do you help them make connections and what can people do to find them? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways that you can find partners. I think the first thing is just understanding what it is that you want out of transport and being really clear with that before you even start to look, right? Why are we doing transport? What type of animal? Are we going to bring in? What are our requirements for bringing animals in? What are our state requirements? Just sort of having that piece together is a good beginning. And then once you have that, um, there are, are certainly lots of social media pages for animal welfare folks. Um, we have our network Facebook group, which is wonderful. And American Pets Alive has one too. And so posting on there can be a great way to find partners, connecting with people at conferences, talking to the shelters around you about who they transport in with. All of those are ways that you can find people to connect with. One of the things that I always found to be really effective is if you see a shelter that you think that you would like to work with, just go ahead and pick up the phone and call. Just call them. I feel like there's not enough of, of that happening. So calling can really help you establish that first personal connection. I did have that down as a question. You know, is it as simple as a cold call, which it sounds like it is? Well, how much research should I be doing into my transport partners? You know, if I'm in Mississippi, 
and I'm looking to work with a group in your neck of the woods, somewhere in the Northeast, should I be getting on a plane to check the place out? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And people definitely can be hesitant, right? Because it's emotional and you put a lot of work into animals and getting them ready to go on transport. And we put a lot of love into that. Communication really is the key, right? So one of the things that I suggest when you make a new partnership is get your teams on like a Zoom call, have a list of questions, right? And just talk through those questions with each other and, you know, find out the answers to the things that you are curious about. And, you know, most of the time, what you're going to find is that they are just as excited to receive those animals and help save them as you were to put the effort into sending them up in the first place. But that will be a really good way to find out if you're on the same page about, you know, what the next steps are and what, what that match looks like. Well, what about the formalities of that relationship, Audrey? You know, do, you, do we need to have a contract with stipulations about positive outcomes, you know, maybe how the animals will be transported, who's shouldering the costs, etc.? Well, I think that, you know, as far as, far as positive outcomes, there needs to be a, a level of trust, right? So we all have had that situation where maybe we think that a, you know, everything's going to be fine. And then an animal gets to a different organization and their behavior isn't what we saw, or, you know, maybe there are some differences to what that animal looks like when they arrive or, or they're sick and they had an underlying health condition that we didn't know about. So if you have a good relationship with your receiving partner you would ideally trust them to make that decision with the same care and love that you would make that decision for that animal. Well, I mentioned a contract. Is that something you counsel folks to do? So, you know, there is that absolute clarity. I think an MOU is is um, a nice thing, right? You can certainly have an MOU and just outline, you know, here are, here are our requirements. Here's what happens if, you know, something like that happens. This will be the process. So it's very clear ahead of time on both sides, right? That if that situation arises, this will be how it's handled. And you know, sometimes the word contract sounds kind of scary and it can feel like something that's overwhelming, but it can really just be as simple as just writing down, you know, what the expectations are. Going through the process of making an MOU can help you, you know, get to an agreement and figure out maybe what questions are unanswered. The actual task of getting the animals from point A to point B, a lot of options, right? Uh, you know, of course, transporting yourself, but a lot of organizations out there do just transport only. There are companies that will transport animals, but I think we want to be sure we're putting our trust in the right folks. So how do I determine, again, whether or not someone is doing this the right way so that I can feel comfortable putting my animals in their care? What kind of questions should I be asking? Yeah, it's a good question. You definitely want to make sure that the animals are safe, right? So asking questions is a good start, right? Asking what kind of housing are the animals transported in? How do they monitor the temperature in their van? How often do they stop for breaks? Are there two drivers? When do the drivers take a break? What kind of vehicle do they have? Is that vehicle safe? How often do they inspect it? Those are good questions to start with. It can be hard because you don't know what you don't know. You can also ask other groups that they use for references. That's a great way to do it because they'll tell you very quickly if something you know, has ever been uncomfortable or if they're wonderful. I think also establishing how you will be communicated with throughout the transport, just knowing how will you know, you know, where the animals are, if they're stopping for an overnight, how will you be notified if all of the animals arrive, what the timeline is, those are all good questions to ask. So from this program perspective, Audrey, a point I want to make is, uh, I, I don't know, about the cultural approach to transport, I guess we could say, you know, that we really need to be careful about how we communicate to the public about this type of program we're trying to alleviate the pressure in one overwhelmed community 
we're not moving them out because the community isn't worthy of pets or pet ownership or the animals, you know, we don't think will be treated well. I think it's something really still all too prevalent when it's animals coming from a very under-resourced community where it's an implied or even a very direct message that the sending community is bad and the receiving community is good and the hero for taking those pets. Right. I mean, the idea is that you're moving not all of the pets out of a community, but enough animals out so that that shelter can get some breathing room to establish the programs that they need to do their adoptions in their own community and become self-sustaining, right? And a good receiving partner is going to want to see the sending shelter achieve that and do everything that they can to help them get there. How much of that should be a consideration, do you think? You know, if the sending community is really not doing the right things with the space and the time we're creating with the transport, you know, if they're not working to become self-sustaining, you realize this is just going to be a never-ending cycle. Should I be looking elsewhere or should I just focus on the communities that I've got because the needs there arguably are greater and aren't going to end. I do think that it's important to understand why the sending shelter is transporting out if you're a receiver. Just understanding what their motivations are and how those motivations align with your values. Having similar values is going to help with your relationship overall, right? Um, You know, you'll be accomplishing goals together and that's ultimately what you want. For me personally, I do struggle with emptying a refilling bucket, right? So if the shelter's not moving toward programs that can help them become self-sustaining, you might find that that transport relationship looks different than a community where the shelter is really trying to uh, move things forward and help. But I, I mean, it doesn't mean don't transport out of there. Just, you know, use your experience. And I think it again goes back to you don't know what you don't know, right? So sometimes I think when those shelters that have a, you know, very big challenges and very low save rates and a lot of animals to save, they're, they're so in the day to day, right, that it can be hard to kind of take that breath and see, okay, you know, the programmatic development that I need is this. Um, and so there's nothing wrong with sort of just pointing out, hey, have you thought about maybe trying fee waived adoptions? Have you thought about open adoptions, changing your process, or asking questions? What makes you think that the adopters in your community aren't good for the animals that you have. Like, tell me about that. And just opening a dialogue and having a conversation, um, I I think is really important. can go a long way. You know, I I don't know that anyone truly knows how many animals are transported in a year, tens of thousands, probably six figures is a better guess. But from your perspective, we talk about this not being something we want to do forever or we will do forever. But do you have any sense in five years or 10 years, how long will we need to continue doing this? Or will it always continue? Are we always going to be transporting on some level? I think we'll always be helping each other on some level, right? I mean, there are, there are times that transport is essential, whether the community is at 90 or not, right? So, you know, natural disasters, those kind of things, those are all times that transport happens. But you know, slowly it becomes less and less as shelters become self-sustaining in their own communities, then those shelters don't have to transport out as often or um, at all, even. So I do think there will come a time when transport is much, much less than it is now, definitely. And I think, you know, we've already sort of saw in 
you know, during the pandemic, some of that, right? We did see lots of animals moving. And then there was actually a demand for animals in the Northeast that um, in some instances, they were having a hard time getting enough animals transported in, which sounds crazy. but <laughs> True story. I remember being at the Best Friends Conference probably 10 years ago, meeting some folks from an organization in Vermont. They were telling me they didn't have enough cats to adopt, adult cats, 10 years ago. I remember people thought they were making it up, but I think that is such a good example of the supply and demand needs. It, it's a real thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think sometimes the regulations that the states have can complicate it a little bit, right? Because they have mandatory quarantine periods or whatever, and the shelters are limited by the quarantine space that they have. So if a shelter has quarantine space for 10 cats and they have to be quarantined for seven days, they'll take in 10 cats, hold them for seven days. And on day eight, they all get adopted. And on day nine, they don't have cats, right? So it kind of turns into this cycle, depending on what the um, regulations are. And that can make things a little bit complicated for supply and demand. Well, we're going to talk to Dr. Aaron in this episode as well. So I don't want to ask you about the medical side too much, but I also don't think we can talk too much about this, which is making sure as best you can that you're not being an unwilling participant in helping to spread disease. So, you know, there's always going to be some risk of moving those diseases to parts of the country where they're less prevalent. But uh, man, we got to do everything we can to make sure we're not doing that. Right. And I think that this is where honesty becomes really important too, because sometimes it can happen where people really want to see an animal have a live outcome. And maybe that animal has a little sniffle or is a little symptomatic. And it can be tempting, I think, sometimes for, for folks to go ahead and just put that animal on the van. And you need, do need to be careful there and communicate, right? Call the other shelter. This is what's happening. This is what I'm seeing. You know, if we get the animal into foster, can you take it in two weeks when he's better? You know, that sort of thing. And be solution-oriented while still being transparent and honest. This has been a great high-level overview, Audrey. I really appreciate it. And, you know, listen, I know it's a huge topic, but anything else you want to make sure we talk about that we didn't touch on? Well, there's so many things to talk about. Well, I think, you know, there is the matter of the way that the two shelters communicate, right? Sometimes I think there's a lot of opportunity for the way that that relationship can develop. And I think that that opportunity kind of goes all the way down. One of my favorite things that I ever did was establish a transport relationship with a sending shelter and then make um, like a little Facebook group for the staffs on both sides so that they can see we like my team would post like the adoptions or photos or whatever of the arrival. And it was great because their volunteers and staff could chime in and say, oh, this dog likes this toy or he didn't do well with cats in the shelter or whatever it was. So, I mean, really just thinking about it as a holistic relationship and not just a way to get animals from A to B, right? Really building a relationship with your partners is very important and also very rewarding too to help everybody see that shelter succeed. That's so great. And you know, we know we get attached to animals in our care and that follow-up of the pet in the new home, it helps close that loop. It keeps your staff happy, keeps them engaged with transport, helps them feel comfortable that they're sending animals to positive outcomes and not just sending them to, to nowhere, right? And of course, those stories and those updates, regardless of where the positive outcome happens, those are the stories we want to communicate to our supporters uh, on both the sending and receiving end. Exactly. And, it, you know, building that relationship, opening it that way helps people be open to when other things come up in their shelter. Well, how did your shelter handle this? You know, we had this happen. Do you guys ever deal with that? And just having that dialogue over overall is nice. Are you transporting pets? What's working? What's not? 
send us an email here. We'd love to learn more about the work you're doing. The email is podcast at bestfriends.org, podcast at bestfriends.org. One of the biggest elements of responsible transport is the medical side, the actual care of the animals from beginning to end. To learn more about that, I spoke with the medical director at Best Friends, Dr. Aaron Katribe. Okay, Dr. Aaron, responsible transport on the medical side. Uh, you know, we just heard from Audrey on the more program side of it, but obviously a lot of medical and behavioral considerations with transport. So from your perspective, can you define responsible transport? In my mind, uh, I think that responsible transport means that both the sending and receiving shelters are, are taking steps to reduce the risk of transmission of infectious disease uh, at all stages. So both before transport, after transport, and, and sometimes even strategies that we can use during the actual physical transport on the, the transport vehicle. The great news is that many of the strategies that, that will reduce disease transmission around transport are also strategies that reduce disease in shelters. So in the sending shelter and the receiving shelter, and they're, they're great strategies that likely shelters should be using anyway. And, and so they will also prevent disease just within those organizations. And so when we implement these strategies in the context of transport, we're oftentimes making those shelter populations healthy, even for the animals that aren't physically going on those transports. This is a massive country. We've got a lot of differences, including the types of diseases that are seen. Admittedly, my knowledge on this stuff's pretty thin. So you tell me, but I think uh, I think of heartworm being an obvious one here. Something seen quite a lot down south, but less so the further north you go. That is true to a certain extent. Uh, heartworm disease is a fantastic example of a disease that has a, a pretty specific geographic distribution. But for a number of reasons, likely many of them unrelated to transport, even heartworm disease is, is having a wider distribution with that as an example, it's spread by mosquitoes. And because of changes in climate, because of urban microclimates that are essentially warmer than the, the general climate in an area, and an increase in, in those urban areas, and an increase in humans and dogs living in those urban areas, we are seeing increases in distribution of some of those diseases. There are other diseases like distemper, like you mentioned, that, that do tend to have a geographic distribution that focuses more in the South, but I think that's less related to climate and more related to issues like uh, unvaccinated populations of dogs, lack of access to veterinary care for own dogs, for, for diseases like distemper that we have uh, really strong prevention mechanisms for, like vaccination. It might be easy sometimes for people to say, you know, I don't need to worry about sending animals suspected of a certain condition to insert place name because they don't have that issue there. But the point you're making is that we really do need to be worried about it because ideally we're not taking this thing, which is a life-saving measure, a life-saving program, and turning it into a need to do more work like disease eradication. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, again, heartworm is the primary example. Uh, I communicate with veterinarians all the time uh, up north that have treated one case or seen one case of heartworm in their entire career. Meanwhile, I have treated upwards of 2,000 dogs probably at this point, right? Uh, and so that's absolutely true. But again, whether it's due to transport or not, um, I think it's due to a variety of factors. But we are seeing many of the disease, these diseases in, in you know, 
more areas than we used to. And, and so it is important for veterinarians and for shelters to have all of these diseases on their radar, even though they're diseases they may not have seen previously. I think the complexities of America, I suppose, can impact this. We are 48 contiguous states, but all very different states often. And there are different regulations in terms of animal transport. Something required here may not be required there. Important, obviously, that we're aware of them. But just because one state doesn't require, say, an extra step, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. I think the best way to talk about these things are as just general strategies to reduce transmission of disease. There are legal requirements that are different in every state and even in some smaller jurisdictions that uh, I, I think it's it's not worth it to get into. Uh, I encourage any organization that is doing transport to look into what those requirements are in terms of things like health certificates, uh, veterinary exams, quarantines. They're, you know The list is long in some places of things that are required before transport, and they're constantly changing, right? And so it, that is one of the challenges around transport, actually, that can make it really difficult. Uh, I I do think, though, there are some some strategies that and, and some practices that I consider almost standard of care that, that we should be doing. And, and like I mentioned before, they're strategies that make sense for any shelter in terms of disease prevention. And, and so then when we, we talk about transport, reducing transmission of disease in the shelter means reducing transmission through transport uh, and on the transport vehicle as well as at the receiving organizations. You know, I talked to Audrey a little bit about what animals are right for transport, but more from the program's perspective, in your opinion, how do I determine which animals are good candidates to be put into a vehicle and transported sometimes pretty long distances. Yeah, and there are likely exceptions to everything that we'll we'll sort of talk about today when we talk about general strategies. But in general, the things that I think about that would make an animal a good candidate for transport fall into two major buckets. One of those is medical, and the other one is going to be behavior. When I think about medical, it's it's obvious signs of infectious disease. Is this dog or cat showing any obvious symptoms of infectious disease that we risk? transmitting to other animals on that transport vehicle or risk transmitting across state lines and and taking to to those other places. When we talk about the behavior bucket, transport is inherently stressful. Going to the shelter is inherently stressful for animals, but there are definitely some cases that we see where we know that 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 transport, particularly longer distance transports, overnights, things like that, uh, being in close quarters with a lot of other animals are going to be really detrimental to that animal's mental welfare. And so perhaps those animals are not the ones that we put on long distance transports. And we really work to find uh, closer to home outcomes for those animals. What about during the actual transport then? You know, I don't know if we have best practices that we follow in terms of breaks, how often, you know, what to do on overnights, the disease protocols. Yeah, there are uh, several different published guidelines out there. Best Friends has some materials around this. Other national organizations have some transport guidelines. And, and there are. There's, there's clear guidelines around how often to stop, uh, provision of food and water, uh, not transporting really, really young animals unless there is, you know, a mother going on that transport with them. And these are meant for the health and the welfare of the animals during transport. Uh, there are some guidelines around 
things like temperature of the vehicle, right? We're talking about potentially transporting animals from the South. And as many of us have experienced, the, the South during the summer can, can be really, really, really hot. And that if you don't have a climate controlled vehicle, then, then that's not appropriate to transport animals from those locations in the summer months. Uh, up North, it's, it's receiving animals in the winter, right? So again, climate control is one of those things. Uh, and then just ensuring to the best of your ability that we're not transmitting infectious disease on that vehicle. So there's not cross-contamination in between kennels of, of feces or urine or things like that. I also recommend general biosecurity measures. So things that we're probably doing in sending shelters that deal with a lot of infectious disease anyway, things like wearing gloves or other protective equipment in between handling different animals, particularly if we're transporting highly vulnerable animals. So puppies and kittens that are really susceptible to infectious disease, it's handling them cautiously and with protection. So we're not transmitting infectious disease while we uh, are often used to those measures in sending shelters that deal with a lot of disease. The folks that are doing the physical transport may not be used to those measures. And so for them, it's, it's not routine to wear gloves. Um, and so it's really talking to our folks that are doing the transport. And then same thing on the receiving end too, once we get to that point. So when we arrive with a van load of pets, should they be quarantined? So quarantine is an interesting one. There, there are some states that require some degree of, of quarantine when animals are transported in, and certainly we need to follow those guidelines if those exist. But the reality with when we talk about quarantine is whether it's at the sending shelter or the receiving shelter, holding an animal for a quarantine just in case they have infectious disease and are going to break with it uh, is actually not a, a recommended strategy as a general rule. The most dangerous place for animals to be in terms of infectious disease is in the physical shelter. And so if all we're doing is hanging on to them in the physical shelter, waiting for them to maybe show some signs of infectious disease, we're, we're potentially actually just exposing them to more infectious disease while they're in that period. We can uh, tweak things and potentially, for example, hold an animal in foster care in a quote unquote quarantine. The, the key point, though, is that whatever we're doing with those animals, two things. The physical shelter is the most dangerous place in terms of infectious disease. And second of all, we want to make sure that whatever we're doing, we're not prohibiting them from moving along to their final outcome. The ultimate goal with all of this is that they, they get adopted and they go to a long-term home. And so no matter where we're holding them, uh, whether that's in the physical shelter or in a foster home, it's that they're still visible to the public and they're still available if that's allowed, you know, in, under local regulations, and that they can still be adopted, right? Because that ultimately is going to keep them the safest. If we get them into a home and, and away from any potential exposure to infectious disease in the shelter. Treating diseases isn't cheap. Uh, you know, hell, even finding vets is a challenge right now, as we know. So how much should a receiving organization be prepared for the unknown and, and maybe even the worst? You know, it sounds easy to bring animals in, but fair to say that you do need to be prepared to prevent the spread of disease and, and make sure you're treating the animals you just brought in. Yeah, I think a lot of the preventive work actually happens on the sending end. And so for a receiving organization that's working with a sending shelter, uh, it doesn't mean they're powerless. It's, it's things like vaccinating animals on intake. So pillars and, and essentially what, what should be standards of care in animal shelters, uh, vaccination, sanitation, biosecurity with, with vulnerable animals. It's doing those things on the sending end and 
those are going to prevent disease in that sending shelter too, even for the animals that aren't slated to go on transport. And, and it's receiving shelters talking to their sending shelters to see if they are doing those, those practices. And, and if they're not, it's figuring out why. Is it an education issue? Is it a training issue? Is it they haven't figured out how to incorporate and take vaccination into their process? Is it a financial issue? And that's actually something that Best Friends has started to explore is, is can we facilitate some of these strategies to prevent infectious disease by providing funding for intake vaccinations? provide training for staff, help them uh, incorporate things like intake vaccination into their processes so that their animals are healthier. And, and that can potentially open up more transfer outcomes for them, as well as just generally keep those, those animals healthier in that shelter. Do we have any sense, Dr. Aaron, of how often animal welfare transport causes disease outbreaks? We all hear the stories. There was one recently here in Michigan about a parvo outbreak. It was a mystery illness that turned out to be parvo. I imagine these things, you know, probably happen too often. Just wondering if there's data on that. We don't have any data that I know of around, you know, how many disease outbreaks are related to transport. We certainly have lots of, you know, anecdotal evidence. We oftentimes will link disease outbreaks to transport or to the sending shelter. And sometimes I think that's actually incorrect. There, there are things we can do to try to figure out when we see disease on the receiving end, did that disease come actually from that sending shelter? Or oftentimes it, it comes from the community, which is still important. But the strategies that a sending organization uses to address that problem are going to be different. So if an animal gets disease in the shelter, that, that looks different than when an animal picks up the disease in the community then moves through the sending shelter and then breaks with it on the receiving end, right? That's a community problem. And, and while the shelter can certainly help tackle that, that, that strategy looks very different than there's a whole bunch of disease transmission in the sending shelter. And so again, to, to answer your question, you know, there's not any broad data around this. We definitely know what happens and you can with somebody who's knowledgeable about that specific disease, usually a, a shelter medicine trained veterinarian, you can work backwards and try to figure out where that exposure happened. I always think it's a good idea to loop in a shelter vet who can help you work through these issues and, and really work through, you know, where did this animal get disease? Where do we think it came from? What are the strategies we need to use to prevent this from happening in the future? Um, but to my knowledge, there's no no broader data out there that really tells us how often this happens. Kind of interesting there isn't more data. I mean, you know, when we talk about data and we talk about transport, I would love to have data on infectious disease. I'm, I'm a shelter veterinarian. I love talking about infectious disease and I also love data, but we don't even know how many animals are being transported, much less much less actual data around, you know, how much disease is being uh, transmitted around. Final thing, uh, and listen, this is a tricky point to to make given our current reality, but you keep mention, mentioning shelter vets, which it's a different thing than a private veterinarian, right? And that's not a slight on private vets and that they don't know enough, or, but, you know, they're just different things. And their world probably doesn't involve a whole lot of large-scale transport. So, you know, that process and infectious diseases and in tight quarters, those things, they may just not be as uh, knowledgeable uh, as a shelter vet. Yeah, I think that is a very good point. There are numerous ways to obtain additional training in shelter medicine. And, and so things like a focus on infectious disease are part of what comes with that training and, and really understanding 
managing not just the individual animal, but managing populations. And it's, it's education around diseases that like, I'll be honest, when, when I was in vet school, you know, we, we talked about canine distemper as an example. Um, I, I was taught two things about distemper. One, you'll never see it because it's a disease we vaccinate for. And number two, if you do see it, you might as well euthanize because dogs don't survive. And both of those things could not be further from the truth, right? I see it all the time in shelters and we have survival rates of upwards of 90% in, in some populations when we have the resources to, to treat these dogs. And, and I wouldn't have known that without taking extra education in shelter medicine, without working with shelter medicine trained veterinarians and specialists. It is a board certified specialty within veterinary medicine. And so that I think is a key point that I would offer for particularly receiving organizations that find themselves dealing with infectious disease is, is to work with a vet that's trained in shelter medicine and to ask for help. If you don't have a vet on staff, uh, that's, that's still a big part of it's what I do in my role at Best Friends. Many of the shelter medicine academic programs offer disease consultations or outbreak consultations. So there are tons of resources out there. And, and so it is ask for help. Certainly, you know, a private practice veterinarian is who you should go to for treatment of individual animals. But if you find yourself dealing with, with a bigger problem or a lot of infectious disease um, in your own population or from your sending shelter, I think working with a vet that's trained in shelter medicine to work through those challenges um, will allow you to not only save more lives, but to use your resources in the most efficient way to address that infectious disease problem. We have lots of resources available related to transport programs. In the show notes on your podcast app for this episode, you will see a link to our website for episode number 129. Click that, take a look at the resources section. Thank you to Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, Kim Clonch, Tawny Hammond, and Mark Peralta for helping to produce this program. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.